Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Avery Frank and David Stokes. David, this has been a big week. We released a new report, and we'll talk about that in just one second. We don't do a lot of sports on the Show Me Institute podcast, but I do want to give you just 30 seconds, 45 seconds. Uh, we're recording this the day after your football team, the Detroit Lions, won a big game. And the only reason that I mention it is that, one, you're the only Detroit Lions fan that I know, and two, it's it's been a while, right? So I just want to give you the first 30 <laughs> seconds, 45 seconds of the podcast to react to last night's big win. But I do have to admit that, speaking of things that have it's been a while since Detroit won big in Green Bay like that. But it hasn't been that long since I've been a Lions fan. So I'm not, I didn't jump on board this year or anything. I became a fan a few years back after the Rams left. And, you know, I needed the team. And I sort of, over time, settled on the Lions here. And I'm glad I did it like two years ago when they were still pretty darn bad. So now that this year when they're getting good, it's, it's been a fun season. And, yes, it was fun to watch them go into Lambeau Field on national television last night and just stomp the Green Bay Packers. That was that was a lot of fun. All right, well, we'll check in during this uh, NFL season. We'll check in with you and the, the Lions from time to time. Well, I think we should have a, a co-podcast with the Mackinac Center. I think we I think we could have a lot of a lot of agreement on that. I'll uh, reach out, as they say. I'll gauge the interest and get back to you on that idea. Thank um, you, sir. But the other big news at the Show Me Institute this week was that we released a new report. Uh, Rando O'Toole. Uh, he's a transportation researcher, and it's on transit in St. Louis, and specifically, it addresses this idea of a extension of the Metrolink system in St. Louis. David, could you tell us about the report and um, some of its conclusions, please? Well, the report is titled, Is St. Louis Transit Built for the 2020s and the 1910s? And it's about expanding light rail further in St. Louis, which is a completely unnecessary and wasteful use of tax dollars. It is not going to improve public transportation around our region. The author is Randall O'Toole, who I'm proud to say is a, a friend of mine. Randall's one of a country's premier transportation economist. He's done work for a lot of think tanks. He was at the Cato Institute out of Washington, D.C. for a long time, and he's done projects for the Show Me Institute before. We're delighted to have him back to release this report that just details how this new Metrolink extension down, which is essentially down Jefferson Avenue, is just completely unnecessary. It's not, and the key point is not that Anybody's objecting to spending tax dollars on public transit. It's that we keep cutting bus service to the bone. Every six months, there's a new, it seems there's a new round of bus cuts here. And yet at the same time, we're spending a fortune on Metrolink that very few people ride. And the data is clear on that. All the data, all the ridership data is in the, in the paper here. And we should be taking that money, some of it at least, because bus services aren't nearly as expensive as new light rail lines, should be taking some of that money and improving our bus system to serve the people who really use public transit, not to continue some fantasy of convincing suburbanites to commute around on light rail, which is never going to happen except for some cardinal games or some soccer games here and there. So let's actually save taxpayer money, and provide better transit for people who need public transit to get to jobs, to get to the grocery store, to get kids to school, people who rely on it. And let's focus on that, not some continued fantasy 
of light rail and uh, papers at showmeinstitute.org and i hope people check it out there's a very good post dispatch article on the paper up at the stl today website by mark slinkman and check that out as well i think it's it's important for people outside of the st louis area to kind of understand the conversation around the metrolink the historic conversation around the metrolink this isn't a story of something that was uh, heavily used, say, before the pandemic, and ridership just hasn't rebound. The the ridership has actually, for transit in St. Louis, has gone down since we s- built the Metrolink, right? That's the that's the craziest stat there, is that ridership in 1990, before the first and still main line of Metrolink was open, total transit ridership in St. Louis was larger then than it is now. So clearly Metrolink is not driving any increased use in transit. Look, most many people in St. Louis, this sort of wide group of people who use Metrolink very occasionally for sporting events, yeah, it's nice for a for a Blues game. It's nice for a Cardinals game or a St. Louis FC soccer game. Uh, that's not what we should be focusing billions of dollars on. Is helping sports fans get around a little bit more. We should be focusing on a better bus system to help to help people who need public transit. Use it. That's how we'll grow our economy by connecting use employees to employers through buses. And anybody who reads this and thinks it's an anti-public transit paper is just completely wrong. This is this is very supportive of investing in public transit in our region, just doing it the right way, which also happens to be the much less expensive way. Also happens to be the less politically popular way because around the nation, politicians seem to have this attraction for the fancy new toy of of rail and everybody's repelled by the old reliable bus system but that's what we need to be spending our money on sure and this is a conversation of spending hundreds of millions of dollars maybe on this extension and i don't know it isn't just a a yes or no on the there's some real opportunity costs when you're talking about a city a a region like st louis that I mean, we've got a lot of issues. We talk about it on here all the time. So it's it, an expansion of Metrolink would come at the expense of other public projects, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we t- we collect a fortune in sales taxes for for Metrolink here in, in St. Louis, in the city and in the county. This right now, I think the project is right around $800 million. That's what it's believed to cost. Of course, it's going to be substantially higher than that. These types of projects are always substantially higher than that. I think they're... I would wage wager a small amount of money that this will be well in this will be over a billion dollars by the time it is said and done, and it's probably not unintentional that the total estimated cost right now is under under a billion, so they don't have to use that B word right there. That said, yes, we should be taking that money, some of it at least, and reinvesting in our bus system. If that means paying higher salaries to get more bus drivers to serve to work the system. So be it. If that means better security on buses and the existing Metrolink route, I think that's vital. Does that mean instituting bus rapid transit systems that have worked in Kansas City and could work here? Another great thing to strongly consider. Anything but $800 million, probably more, to expand a light rail system that very few people ride with regularity, that serves very little of the community, and to build it in a, in a way and in a place which doesn't serve many people. This new Jefferson 
this new Jefferson Avenue expansion, there's not many people being served there and certainly not many job centers. It's it's not even like there's a there's a huge demand for the current supply of Metrolink. There there's just not. There isn't. And Randall, this isn't really the subject of this paper, but in some of his other writings, you say, look, a lot of these light rail lines and the like, a lot of it is funded just because there's an enormous amount of federal money available for it. And so city leaders throughout the country, they want to get their hands on on that money. So there's far more money available for new start programs like light rail or new subways than there are for for just maintaining and growing your bus system. So because there's federal money available, people chase it. And that's certainly part of the reason we're doing what we're doing here in St. Louis. All right. You can uh, go read it at showmeinstitute.org. All right, Avery, um, we've talked about Airbnb uh, short-term rental regulations in the city of St. Louis a lot on the podcast recently. Well, it's up for debate again in the city. There's a bill that was um, considered earlier. Now it's back. There's been some changes. Uh, First, what did you think about the original bill and then get into what are some of the changes with this new bill? Yeah. So the first thing to remember with short-term rental legislation is that it's a worldwide problem. You know, in my research that I was doing for this, I was looking at papers from the University of Tokyo, from Singapore, from Anaheim. Like, this is something that it popped up. It was like, oh my gosh, we got an app. We got we got people, we got tourists in residential areas. What's going on? And the governments had to make regulations to counter this. And there's a lot of pros and there's a lot of cons. And St. Louis faces similar uh, situations than these other cities. And so you got pros like... You got more tax revenue, which is obvious. You have increased revenue for businesses on the outside. So hotels are usually, you know, in touristy areas. You know, you can see the arch, you can see the Cardinals game. But Airbnbs are more around the outside. They're not concentrated in the touristy areas. And with that, you have people ready to spend money. You got these tourists that are ready to spend money. Like, oh, I'm on vacation. Let's blow it out. And they're going to restaurants, they're going to grocery stores, and that's a nice little boost of income for these people that aren't usually getting tourist income. And that's a pro. And then you got more competition for hotels. So when the Airbnbs came up, it was like, oh my gosh, we're losing a lot of people to this. It's like, we got to up our game a little bit. So they streamlined their booking process. They made it, the hotels made it where you can get it on the app. You can do it a lot easier. They made the rooms more unique. They partnered with small businesses. It's like, we needed to competition spurs growth and improvement and that was good for short-term rentals to do that in the city and it's also just a nice little boost of income on the side and it's good for visitors coming to our city they get to live like a local they get to come in a big group and they get to maybe get recruited to our city if they like it a little bit but the issue with living like a local is you have people doing touristy stuff in residential areas so it's like a tuesday night and you're hearing like boonch 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 it's like oh my gosh please keep it down i have work tomorrow you can't be having a party when i'm trying to go to sleep to go to work and this nuisance i understand people for getting upset with it and then you have you know it breaks down the social neighborhood it's like oh, i need to borrow a read a weed eater from jimmy but i don't have a neighbor who am i gonna ask all my neighbors are all tourists and it's like that's an issue. And then in St. Louis City in particular, crime's an issue. You know, we've seen the horror stories where there's shootings and stuff at parties. And I mean, that's an issue and something that needs to be fixed. But all in all, you know, there is a need for regulation. Me as a free market guy, I still think there is a place for regulation. And David and I, we went and testified, although I couldn't be there. I had jury duty that day, of course. But 
we liked the punishment system. We thought it was good to hold people, the renters, the the platform, and the people going to the Airbnbs accountable. We thought that was good. We thought not having a complete ban like some other cities was good because, you know, these crazy parties, they happen elsewhere. It's not just at Airbnbs. You know, I saw a headline of these kids, they rented out an office space and there was a shooting in the office. It was like, holy cow. But so to be clear, the the situation you're describing is that in the city, there's been this problem for a while now that there are people renting Airbnbs downtown for the specific purpose of having a party. So you rent an apartment Mm -hmm. and it's not that, you know, you were planning to do something else and then there just ended up being a party. People are renting these places for one night. And then having a party with dozens and dozens of people in an apartment building where other people live. And I understand they're also renting Avery to come to their parties (laughs) in beatbox for everybody (laughs) for an an entire night. I think that's the the highlight. I demand an entire podcast of nothing but Avery beatboxing. Thank you. Thank you. That'll be behind the paywall, the Show Me Institute Podcast Plus. So, okay, there was a, a bill proposed. You and David went and testified on it now there's a new version of the bill so what's the differences between the old one and the new one yeah in the old version we thought there was enough punishment system to keep people you know if they continue to rent to unruly parties they would lose the permit and that would no longer be a party spot but we think that or i think i'm pretty sure david agrees with me that i do (laughs) that this was a nice satisfactory compromise between the pros and cons but now it's shift to a burden and one of the biggest things is there's a two-night minimum rule, which it's it's a little unreasonable. You know, it's like it's not going to stop these parties from happening. Maybe they prepare the first night and then blow it out the second night, or they just go back to back. It's like this is an unreasonable compromise, uh, unreasonable policy that will affect people coming to our city. Like if you have a St. Louis U graduate and you're like, oh, we're going to come Saturday night, celebrate a graduate Sunday morning and leave. You can't do that anymore. You've got to get it for two nights, or if you want to come to a Cardinals game for one night, you got to get it two nights. This is going to be holding up a lot of stuff. But probably the biggest problem I have with this new addition is that you have to live within one hour, and you have to be able to get to your property within one hour if there's a problem. So let's say you know you hear a phone call, and it's like, bzz, bzz, like, hello, this is Mr. Jones. There's a nuisance and noise violation at your property. We need you to get here in an hour. And it's like, but Mr. Jones, I'm at, I'm at Myrtle Beach. How am I supposed to get back to my property? He's like, well, you better find a jet or a way to get back because we need you here or you're going to lose your permit. And it's like, this is an unreasonable regulation because it kind of puts a stranglehold on like an individual owner running one of these. You can't go to the beach and say, while I'm at the beach, I'm going to rent out my apartment or my house for someone to come visit because you can't be there at the same time and that's a huge problem and then the third thing that i think is a big problem with this bill is that you can only have one uh, one short-term rental in an apartment complex or something like an apartment complex and this is a issue because there's already a four you can already the maximum already is four so you can only have four short-term rentals in the city of st louis and when you pair all this together, it's like, who's going to be running these short-term rentals? It's like kind of a quasi-ban. It's, okay, if you're an organization running short-term rentals, you can only have one for per building. So you're going to be spreading out your four maximum short-term rentals into four different buildings. And it's like, this is unreasonable. This isn't profitable. We're going to have to deal with four different landlords and do all these things. 
And then if you're an individual, it's like, well, I got to book it for two nights and I have to be within an hour. How am I supposed to do that? So it just seems that this ban has just turned it from a nice compromise to an unreasonable burden on owners and visitors alike. And I don't think if, if apartment owners, Airbnb owners, whatever, were to sue, I think a lot of these parts in the new bill would be highly questionable in a court of law. I mean, I don't know how you can say somebody has to be able to get someplace within an hour or they lose their business license so you can't get you can't get sick and be in a hospital i mean this is preposterous and the idea that other aspects of it that you it's going to be limited potentially only to city residents can can operate this that's there's absolutely laws that say you cannot limit economic activity only to people who live in your community so it's gone from as avery well stated uh a good fair, reasonable compromise bill that increased regulation over Airbnbs and just did it in a smart way to now just a, an utterly burdensome bill here. And it's, very, it's been very frustrating to, to see it happen. Sure. So do you have a read yet? Either of you, do you have a read yet on kind of the, the appetite for these changes for when when it goes um before the the board of aldermen, what what the outcome would be? I I don't I, I don't have any type of read on the the inner workings there. As as Avery said, we went to the board of aldermen and testified at one of the hearings. Uh, but but how will, as for vote counting or vote whipping, I have I have no idea. But it will be interesting. It should be coming up for a, a vote fairly soon. And again again, I wouldn't be surprised at all if if there was a lawsuit based on this. Because uh, I think it's gone way too far and imposed way way too dramatic burdens on it on the on the short term rental industry. Sure. So I mean, Avery, around the country, this seems like something we've talked about it before. That this these might just be natural growing pains of an industry that mm-hmm. is you know ten fifteen years old. That um, I don't know around the country have 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 there been similar if we want to call this a soft ban or something like that. Does it seem like that these issues are popping up in other major cities around the country? Yeah, and people are handling it in different ways. And I'd say our original bill was most similar to Denver's. You know, Denver had a very good their bill is basically the same as ours. But and but one thing they did that I liked is they made it where you had to register everything your license and everything was all online. And like SDRs are all online. The app they're all made in apps. Your license should also be online. But it's just cities have all handled this differently. And I think St. Louis, I mean, in a, in a city in need of some economic activity, you know, we've lost a lot of people, we're shrinking. I don't think we should be banning people from coming to our city because I do see that there are some people out there who think it should just be a ban. Sure. And, and I was just delighted by Avery's discussion of this because, again, not only did he have the beatboxing, but after that he had impressions of phones ringing. <laughs> the one-act play. <laughs> he had <laughs> phones ringing. He had voice changes to elderly women talking. It's like it's like suddenly we hired that guy from Police Academy to come <laughs> do policy work at the Show Me Institute. It was high production. This is just an audio-only uh, podcast, but for listeners, Avery has a whole box of props. It's kind of like a Carrot Top <laughs> situation. He was... Uh, uh, had the phone. Can, it was I great. Get into it. I yeah, a couple wardrobe change. changes. <laughs> <laughs> we Dave. totally busted the the wardrobe budget at Chummy Institute this year. <laughs> All right, David. Uh, so these bills are coming. The short term rental bills are coming back after some changes and some 
other legislation that's coming back after some changes. Right now, St. Louis County, they at first, they rejected a property tax freeze for seniors, and there's some changes there. Uh, across the state, Jackson County, they at first rejected a property tax freeze for some seniors. There were some changes, and it seems like it's going to pass then now. Then they passed it. Then they passed it. So, I don't know. what do you, you, This has kind of been your, uh, after the, the Q1 and Q2 was your crusade against land banks, and the second half of 2023... It's really become property tax freezes, and if so if somebody puts a property tax freeze on land bank property, I'm just I'm going to just lose my mind. Um, but so, w- what what are your reaction to uh, these these uh, kind of zombie property tax freezes? Well, they're not getting nothing's getting any better. I mean, it's just it's bad legislation any way you you look at it. And so, I have a blog post up, showmeinsuit.org, talking about how counties around the state are making changes to the state legislation as they implemented this senior property tax freeze in their own counties. And the problem is they have no legal authority to do that. They, the, there's nothing in the state law that says, and the county, you do this and you do other things too if you want. Like the state legislation, poorly written as it is, it doesn't give counties authority to amend it because the counties aren't doing this with their own money. If Jackson, what Jackson County did was they, they first rejected it they rejected exactly what the state authorized them to do. And then they imposed a limit of a assessed value of $550,000 for the property. And anything below that, they said, could get the senior property tax freeze. I'm not even opposed in, in, in theory to some type of maximum on the property. I mean, I guess it makes bad legislation slightly less bad, but they have no authority to do that. And that's what Saint, then they passed it after that. So I'm pretty confident that somebody's going to sue. If I was a Kansas City senior who had a house worth $570,000, you know, I'd probably consider doing that. Uh, Camden County did something similar, imposing uh, a state, statements about how if you did a, re, if you rebuild your house, if you did an improvement or an addition that increased the value by more than a set amount, then your house would be reassessed and presumably retaxed. I don't even think that's a bad idea, but that's not laid out in the state legislation. So now you have now you have St. Louis County thinking about re-entering it and imposing, like Jackson County, some type of maximum value on the property. Will that get past the, the county council? I have I have no idea. It might. But again, they have no legal authority to do this. And in the Post-Dispatch article on it, one of the council members said and it's a council member I have a lot of respect for and know, but he said, you know, I think we should just do it until somebody tells us to not do it. That's a very close paraphrase of, of his statement. And I, uh, that's, just a, that's just a disturbing comment. I hope he meant it sort of flippantly here instead of seriously, because the idea that elected officials should just do what they want until somebody forces them to stop. You know, there's no such thing as limited government in that mindset. None whatsoever. We're just going to do what we want until somebody sues us, until a higher level of government forces us not to, or somebody sues us and a judge tells us to stop. I mean, just all hope's out the window if all elected officials start saying, well, we're just going to do what we want until somebody tells us to stop. So it's disheartening to see so many counties sort of making their own changes. St. Louis City is doing it too. Their, their senior property tax legislation, which hasn't moved forward yet, but the bill they've introduced makes changes to it that are, they have no legal right to do this. Certainly they have no legal right to do it with the school district's money, 
with the zoo museum district's money, with fire district money, with you know municipal money. Counties might be able to do what they want with their own county funds. Might is the key term there, but they can't with with other taxing entities' money. They can't make these changes. It's not legal, and it's again disheartening to see it commonly happening. Sure, a lot of questions here, um, and maybe there's a perfectly good explain, uh, uh, answer for this out there. But the first thing I thought of when I saw the Jackson County bill was the the you know limits five hundred fifty thousand dollars. The last couple of years, home values have increased by a lot. So what happens if you're an individual who their house is worth $555,000 or something, and then home prices come down from this historically high peak, and it doesn't have to be that small of a uh, of a decline for you to fall under that threshold for one, two, three, five years. I mean, is it going to be a system where if you're at the threshold and then your house is reassessed under that value for two years, three years, four years, at what point are you no longer subject to the property tax freeze? Right. It goes under it and then it goes back up. So you're in it and then you're out of it. That's a great question. And I do not know the answer to how they're doing that in in Jackson County or how they would propose to do that in St. Louis County. And it's just another example of the many, many holes in Senate Bill 190, which was, I like short legislation. SB 190 was only two or three pages, but there's a lot of things it needed to address that it didn't even remotely address, and this that is that is one of them. Should it have given counties more authority? Maybe it should have. Uh, I like the idea of treating all taxpayers the same, no matter what their age, and if somebody is 30 years old or 70 years old, but their neighbors getting the same services and the same neighborhood with similar houses, they should be paying the same property taxes. This idea that one group, because they're more politically influential, more politically sympathetic, gets a property tax freeze, which in the not too distant future becomes a property tax cut as other people's taxes go up. I think that's terrible policy. 62, by the way, is a ludicrously young age to, to impose this rule, but perhaps the most obvious flaw in SB 190. You know, you, many people are still working, still earning incomes and growing their growing their careers at 62. So one of many crazy parts of it there. But yes, they're going to make up these tax revenues, school districts and fire districts and on and on and on by having higher property taxes on everybody else, which means they'll go to the voters for those higher property taxes and seniors will look at the, go to the go to the ballot box and say, eh, I may get some improved services here. And I don't have to pay the tax. So, of course, why would you not vote for tax increases then? So I, that's another way that this is going to result in higher property taxes for all of us. And it's just, it's just frustrating to see, to see a group that wanted to come out and improve the property tax system for all of us and that had some success. I'm talking about the, the activists who are behind these efforts around the state who had some success in improving our property tax system 15 years ago or so. Uh, with Senator Mike Gibbons, Senate Bill 711, which was a great bill, to see them now just moving around the state, totally sticking one section of the population against everybody else, and and to see that success is frustrating to say it to say the least. And my issue with this is this it's kind of a small fish, you know. Passing this as an exception kind of keeps us from getting being able to get a big fish like the earnings taxes. Like if we keep cutting these little things, these things that could replace the earnings tax that would actually help grow our city and grow our state, then we we got to stop going for these little things and 
keep focused on the big ones that are really hurting us. Absolutely. Avery, over the next week, what's something that you're going to keep tabs on? Well, Amron just released their 20-year roadmap-ish about how they think the energy is going to be produced in our state. And they're going to be shutting down three of the four coal plants within 10 years and replacing it with renewables and, I believe, a natural gas plant. And I'm hoping that they'll be able to put more nuclear in, and I'm hoping I can help make that happen. So, David? Cape Girardeau is voting Monday for a $52 million tax increment financing, transportation development district, community improvement district, subsidy boondoggle to redevelop their West Park Mall. The city council has already given preliminary approval to the TIF aspect. But what's unique about this proposal is that the sales, the special sales taxes, which are in generally just another form of corporate welfare, the community improvement district and transportation development district taxes, they're actually even larger than the, the TIF here for this mall redevelopment. It was great to see some people from the Cape Girardeau business community go to the uh, city council two weeks ago when they initially approved the TIF and speak against it. Unfortunately, the city council, who doesn't love giving away other taxing districts money when you're giving away much less of your own than you're giving away of other, of other people? And who doesn't want, you know, they always follow, falling for the same promises of redevelopment. No, no risk subsidies here. So they're voting again Monday. Probably final passage of the TIF if it passes as it's expected to, but they're also introducing the new SID and TDD sales taxes. It's terrible public policy. We've got testimony against it up at showmeinstitute.org. We've submitted that to, to Cape Girardeau, and we just very much hope that, that cooler, calmer heads prevail on the Cape Girardeau City Council. All right. Well, David, Avery, thank you very much. And for those of you listening in the St. Louis area, on October 24th, we have Kevin Hassett. He's going to be discussing his book, uh, The Drift, America's Slide Towards Socialism, uh, information up at showmeinstitute.org. It's going to be at the World Chess Hall of Fame. Tickets and information, showmeinstitute.org slash events. Thanks for listening.